So tonight we will be in Psalm 83. In Psalm 83. We'll be reading the whole of the psalm. I'll bring the text up on the screen. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us worship, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek. Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyr, Ashur and has also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna who said, let us take possession for ourselves, the pastors of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over the, all the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So one lovely modern hymn that we like to sing in our church is Speak, O Lord, by the Gettys. I do love that hymn, and I love it. I love it because the central idea of that hymn it, it, it communicates what we're doing when we come to worship. Certainly, we come to worship, offering our praises and our gifts to God. But we come because we expect God to speak to us. We come because God speaks to His people through His Word in worship. We come to hear the voice of the Lord. The hymn closes with a plea at the end of that hymn. It closes with a plea for the Lord to speak and in so doing to build his church until all the earth is filled with his glory. But why must God be so directly involved in the building of his church? Why must he maintain and, and, and continue its progress. Well, there are many reasons, the weaknesses of his people uh, being a chief one of those. But all, another, another uh, major reason is the fierce opposition the church faces in the world. And what do God's people do in the face of evil and wicked opposition? What does the church do when it faces a world that is united in its hatred of Christians, the church, and the gospel. Truly one thing that we do is we implore, as the psalmist does, we implore our God to speak. And so tonight we see the psalmist asking God to speak 
first to the needs of his people and then to speak to the enemies of his people. And we'll consider each point tonight. So first in verses 1 through 8, the psalmist pleads with God to speak to the needs of his people. And this is because we see in verse 1 that God's speech is our salvation. God's speech is the salvation of his people. The psalmist pleads with God not to do three things. He says, God, above all, you know, don't do three things. Don't be, keep silent, don't hold your peace, and don't be still. His, his heart's desire is for God to speak, for God to go to war, God to actively engage in his people's dire situation. If God withholds his speech from us, then we are, as one psalmist wrote in Psalm 28, 3, we are as those who go down to the pit if God is silent. We, we need him to speak or we are dead men. Matthew Henry wrote uh, of the, on this verse that God's speaking is his acting. For with God, saying and doing are the same thing. When our God speaks, worlds are formed. Commandments are, are given. Nations are created Prophecy is proclaimed. He said in Isaiah 62, 1, that he will not keep silent or be quiet until the, the, uh, her righteousness, that of his people, her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. He says later in Isaiah 65, 6, that he will not keep silent, but he will repay the, the idolatrous sins of his people. Paraphrase the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Judgment begins with the church. And if it begins with us, what will become of the ungodly and the wicked who reject the gospel? Our God speaks. He reveals himself in creation, in his scriptures, and ultimately in Jesus Christ, who himself is the very word of God made flesh the ultimate and final revelation of God. Our God speaks words then of deliverance and judgment. And when our God speaks, his words are entirely effective. Um, you think when, whenever we speak, our, our, our words are filled with potential, right? Potential. And they're usually very ineffective, right? Especially when I'm telling my children to not do things. Stop, stop doing that. But God's word is supremely, absolutely, perfectly effective. He says also in Isaiah that he sends out his word and it shall not return to him empty. It shall come full. Joshua says when they took the promised land at the end of the book of Joshua, he said all the promises of God have not fallen to the ground. They have been ful fulfilled. God's word is salvation for his people and it is destruction for his enemies. And this brings us to the enemy's wicked desire in verses 2 through 4. First, we note in verse 2 the psalmist, how the psalmist he declares that these are not merely the enemies of his people or the psalmist's personal enemies, but these are the enemies of God. They are the enemies of the church, but they are first and foremost the enemies of the Lord. Christ said rightly that the world hates his church because the world hates him. This includes those who would change Jesus 
from what uh, we have revealed for us in God's word to something more palatable. Uh, those who would change uh, God and Son and Spirit from a holy trinity, bringing salvation to sinners to some form of, uh, of, of just uh, some sloppy spiritual comfort that affirms whatever we believe or whatever we do. In contrast, we are identified as the church as your people, the people of God, his treasured ones. And, and so this reality of God's enemies and his people both comforts and humbles us. It comforts us because we realize that when we are opposed and hated for our faith, that men are not contending with us. You're like, hey, buddy, your fight ain't with me. Your fight is with God. You're fighting against the Lord. And we know who wins that. We are reminded of God's certain promises, and thus we are encouraged. We are assured of God's good intentions and his love for us, despite our circumstances, what we are experiencing in the moment. And it humbles us, though, too, because it also means if, you know, if, if, if their problem's not really with me, if it's really with God, that also means I'm not the center of attention. Right? It means I'm not the one who is the, the important party here in, in, in this dispute. And, and so it humbles us because it also rebukes prideful anger that rises out of personal offense. Where we almost, we can, we can cite, use our Christianity essentially as a way to puff up our pride and justify uh, our, us returning evil for evil when people come at us. And so it humbles us as well. But secondly, we note this wicked purpose of, of, of the enemies of God is that they want the church destroyed. They craft their plans, they scheme, they consult together to one end that God's people would be wiped out and remembered no more. Now, does, ever, does anyone remember during the kind of the COVID scheme? I know it's all hazy and time is a square circle, you know, officially now. We don't have, we don't have any, any recollection of, did you know time used to work sequentially? Chronologically, now we don't know when, when anything is, but there was a uh, there was a famous uh, 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 Hollywood video fail where a bunch of uh, a bunch of celebrities tried to sing John Lennon's Imagine as a way to kind of encourage people and unite them together, and uh, and they were savagely mocked uh, for doing this. There was this video, and you could see a different. It would just clip from different from star to star as they sang different parts of the song, and. And what were they trying to do? Well, they were trying to sing a song to encourage unity for mankind. Uh, I, I think it, it was well-intentioned enough, I'm sure, and these aren't believers, so I, didn't, I wasn't surprised that they did it. Um, but if you listen to the lyrics of the song, you know, what is required, according to John Lennon, for the world to live as one? Well, he says, no possessions. Okay, well, there, there's something bitterly hilarious for extremely wealthy people to sing about us having no possessions. Um, uh, what else? Uh, he says, the, 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 uh, we need to get rid of the existence of countries with borders, the uh, concept of nations. We need to get rid of that. Not even, not even really going to touch that. Um, then the other great uh, obstacle, the third great obstacle, so we've had possessions, the existence of nations, and then third, the, the third great obstacle, according to John Lennon, that divides mankind is religion. If we can just get, a, get rid of those three things, then we'll all join hands and live as one. Uh, and, and specifically, the religion that he describes in the song, it's not Hindu religion. It's Christian religion. It's Christianity. And so 
all we need to do in order to have world peace is to abolish the concept of personal property, nation states, and religion. That's all. Just those three things, just our three-step plan to world peace. Um, people aren't going to do that willingly, so how much blood has to be spilled in order to make that happen? Uh, there are a lot of regimes that have taken up similar goals that have murdered a lot of people out in the forest. Now, again, I don't ascribe murderous intentions, uh, you know, to, to Lenin or, or, or even to the Hollywood, you know, stars who sang that song together. I think it was just misguided foolishness. Um, you get a bunch of actors who haven't been acting and they got to do something to get out in the public. But, but, here the, but here the idea, though, is human unity can only be achieved by essentially embracing atheism and rejecting God and the church. And that is, a, that is not just a song in John Lennon. You hear that around in the culture. Charles Spurgeon wrote that men would be glad to cast the church out of the world because it rebukes them and is thus a standing menace to their sinful peace. Men would be glad to cast the church out of the world because it rebukes them and is thus a standing menace to their sinful peace. Indeed, the very existence of the church bothers many. Even in the early church where Christians were known, their reputation was for people who obeyed the law, paid their taxes, and cared for the poor, they were still despised. You can go, you can go read a, a letter from Pliny, Pliny the Younger writing to his superior going, okay, what am I supposed to do with these Christians? All right, because I got people coming, coming to me saying I should kill them, but as far as I can tell, they keep all the laws, they pay their taxes, they take care of the poor, they're actually really good citizens, but according to their accusers, I'm supposed to kill them. Like, what should I do? You know, and then, and then his boss uh, wrote him a letter back and said, well, just, you know, get them to sacrifice to the gods, and if they don't, and execute them, but uh, other than that, don't, don't, don't try to go after them. <laughs> so, you know, just that. So just capital punishment. So, um, but uh, but even if the even if that execution aspect doesn't doesn't uh, occur at least in Western countries, although it does occur in different parts of the world, the the despising of Christianity continues today. The very existence of the church that publicly holds its faith in God's word and thus holds to a standard view of marriage, gender, and sexuality it cannot stand cannot remain in the minds of many. Our very existence is an act of terror and oppression. And while many would not seek violence against the church, they would be perfectly fine if the government did. <laughs> if the government would obliterate the church through laws and the use of force through legal authorities. More than happy. So, And usually the first step to that is when they start yelling, tax the churches. Tax the churches. Get rid of that tax exempt status, so we can go so go after the churches. So, and so, but we see the the enemy's wicked desire is still there to destroy the people of God. And you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to be an obnoxious uh, group of Christians with terrible signs picketing people's funerals like cer certain people do. You you could simply be a Christian, and people it'll get their hackles up. And so, you know, I shared, the story, I shared that story before about Billy Graham. We went golfing. And he went golfing, and he's, he, was doing a, he was doing a, they were doing a dual golf thing, and, and he was going, and, 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 and the, the, uh, the other pair uh, went, and, and the, after the game, um, the guy said, well, you know, 
how was the game? Like he was, he was like, why were you so mad? You were so frustrated. And he was like, and and he and he and he had been playing with Billy Graham. And he goes, I don't need some preacher shoving his religion down my throat. And he goes, he didn't say anything. Like he just played golf. He was just really nice. He didn't say anything about the Bible, about Christianity, about hell, sin. He didn't call you nothing. You know what's going on? And the guy was like, ah, I'm just having a bad game. <laughs> like, uh, but but his very presence, uh, it it. it excited something in that guy that he hated and despised and so it happens it still happens and so and so there's the enemy's wicked desire to destroy the church but also we we see that there is this the enemy's wicked unity in that desire in verses five through eight the author lifts lists off everyone uh, conspiring together against god and his people and if you if you look at a map and I was so discombobulated, I forgot to put the map up, so sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but essentially, imagine a map of Israel, and they're essentially, all the places he describes are just basically a big encirclement, all right? There's actually kind of a hole right here where there's nothing, um, but then he names Asher, which is Assyria. <laughs> so, so that's a big dog that comes in that corner right there. But, it, but basically, it, 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 it gives you the picture of total encirclement. It was, it was you know, it's just kind of, it's like he was just like, Tuscaloosa and Starkville and Hattiesburg and you know, like all the places just Meridian is surrounded <laughs> by its enemies that, that are in, encircling and uh, it, it's unclear if there's an actual moment here uh, belonging uh, to, to this like a specific moment in history that he's referring to or if this is simply an accumulation of moments over Israel's history and the dealings with Israel's neighbors and they're in constant battle for the state of their life as a nation and their existence uh, but uh, either way, the, the point is made. God's people live encircled by their enemies. It's true here for Israel as a nation in the midst of a whole lot of nations that despise her. Uh, this is true of Christians who Jesus even said, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So be innocent as doves and as shrewd as snakes. Because it's dangerous out there. The psalmist is laying before the Lord the evil of the opposition and the need for help from the Lord, lest the people of God be wiped off of the face of the earth. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, when you read your Bible, God's people are always seems to be in danger of being wiped off the face of the earth. <laughs> so it just, it just seems to constantly be happening, but God will not let it occur. He won't let it happen. Even as bad as it can be, he still, he still will maintain his, his church. He still will maintain the faith. He will maintain his people. He will not fail. And, and the psalmist does this because the psalmist, while he knows the predicament of God's people, the psalmist also knows the promises of the Lord, who has promised that he will never abandon his people, that he will never forsake them utterly. And even more, the Lord has promised he will not give his glory to another. His glory will be his. And so in effect, the psalmist is singing his own version of speak, O Lord. Asking for God to speak to his people in their dire need. And this is something we need to learn to do. There are times when we are distraught and all we can let out between our sobs is the cry, help me, O Lord. But other times we have the ability and the words to lay out the situation before the Lord in prayer. 
to lay out the harms that have been perpetrated against his people, to detail out the strength and the evil of the enemy and what we're, up, what we're, what we're facing, what we're up against. And in doing so, as we do so, the psalm assures us that we will find our hearts strengthened and emboldened to entrust ourselves to God and far less to ourselves and our own resources. And we entrust ourselves to God and his promises. And we do this even as we ask God to speak not only to his people, but to speak to the enemies of his people, as we see in verses 9 through 18. And there are, th- there are three kinds of things that he asked God to speak. First, he asked God to speak words from the past in verses 9 through 12. Now, the psalmist here recalls the events from Judges chapter 4 through 6, where God destroyed, uh, he, uh, he used Barak and, uh, and, De- and Deborah, and they destroyed um, Sisera. And, well, Sisera technically got uh, taken out by Jael. So good old Jael and her strong arm and that tent stake, right? So... So many jokes, nailed it, you know, you know, all those, all kinds of things you can, all kinds of jokes to be made, so. Um, but he, um, but he, uh, but he recalls what Gideon did to the Midianites by the power of God. You know, before we talked about, you know, the problems with Gideon, but also we remember the blessing of Gideon. Here's, and what God did through him and, the, and, the, and why the author of Hebrews includes Gideon in, his, in Hebrews 11. Well, we see it right here. He recalls, God, what you did with Gideon, you can do here. Do to them what you did to Gideon. It is good to recite the past victory and deliverances and wonders of our God. The psalmist could have, you know, gone back to Egypt and the God's wonders there. He could have gone back to the wilderness. He could have gone to the taking of the promised land. He could have gone to the battles that Israel had had executed against the Philistines and others. I mean, it, it was the stories of, of, the, of God's people are replete with God's deliverances and kindnesses and mercy. In fact, uh, that one, um, one author even suggested that 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is an illustration of what we see in this psalm. And that's Jehoshaphat who, who goes against the battle and he ends up, they don't even have to fight the battle because God has all the enemies of God's people united together, uh, attack each other and kill each other. And by the time Jehoshaphat and, and the Israelites get there, that everybody's dead. And so they just plunder all the dead bodies. <laughs> and so just like, that's what God can do for his people. Or he can give them victory through strategy. Or he can, you know, he can do any manner of things. It is good to recite past victories and deliverances and wonders of our God. It reminds us that of, of what happened to those who oppose God and his people. And encourages us because that, those principles still hold true for today. All those who, who say to themselves that they will take possession of the pastures of God that they will take over, and that if we could just get rid of these Christians or get rid of these churches, if we could just do that, then our, everything would be better. Like, but God's people are God's special possession. And while the world may at times rob and do violence to the church, they cannot rob us of what the Lord has given to us. And they cannot rob the Lord of his treasure. Remember, he, what did Jesus say? He said, you, you, like, it, you cannot loosen the father's grip on his people he will not lose one when you are facing terrible situations even right now recall the stories those are your stories your stories that's your 
history. How God time and again upheld and delivered his church when they're they're right on the precipice of being wiped out. And so uh, the psalmist asked God to speak words from the past, but also to speak words of power in verses 13 to 15. Now this psalm is technically what we would call an imprecatory psalm, which means it contains language calling for judgment and justice and destruction to fall upon the enemies of God and his people. It also means that this is one of those psalms that Christians don't really know what to do with because it sounds mean. All right? Now, it doesn't sound nearly as mean as one of them that tells them to dash their babies against the rocks, all right? And just, I don't know what tune you sing that to, but Christians find it odd to sing that, that psalm. All right? But we already sing a psalm that says, that talks about God smashing the teeth of the wicked with blows, all right? So I'm just clarifying. We already sing this stuff, okay? And some have, but some have argued, as Christians have argued, uh, that, that this is contrary uh, to Jesus' command to pray for our enemies and do good to them. And, and, and so even though it is wonderful scripture inspired by God, it is not fitting for us to sing any longer as God's people today, as people on this side of the cross. Now, I would, uh, I, while I certainly respect that argument, I respectfully and strenuously disagree with that argument. I think we have a Psalter for a reason. We have, we we're given the Psalms. It was the hymn book of the church for many, many years uh, before we started writing our own hymns. And, uh, and recovering the Psalms is something that's very helpful to us today. Because I would argue that the imprecatory Psalms are an incredibly important uh, um, a part of the prayer life of God's people. When you read them, uh, you realize that the author is not calling for vengeance for personal slights, uh, nor is he planning on taking the issue into his own hands. This isn't some kind of uh, Christian action movie that we're talking about where he's going to go and, you know, he's going to be like, you know, a Denzel Washington and go arm up and go kill everyone that, you know, crossed him somehow. That's not what this is. This is him praying for God to, to act, for God to work, for God to be just. He's handing it over to the Lord. He's giving all of it to God, asking him to judge. I mean, this is, this is actually what Peter said Jesus did when he said he was silent. And, and he did not re- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so, and so the, the, this imprecatory aspect of prayer is, is an important aspect of our prayer arsenal. Because, the, because there are, as the church, um, there, there are parts of the church, people in the church, individuals in Western churches, but especially places and churches where, you know, we, we don't expect our church to get burned down or for, to get attacked. But there are churches that do. Christians who have experienced incredible injustice uh, in other parts of the world and individual Christians in our own country who have had great evils perpetrated against them as well. But for those people, I would never discourage them from praying to God for justice. That's what imprecatory psalms are. Now, and, and, so, and so the psalmist is, you know, as, as he's describing it here, he's asking God to, he, he's, what he asks God to do is he describes in terms of uh, the power of natural forces, the, the, you know, being wielded by the hand of God, whirlwinds and tempests and forest fires and hurricanes. And, and so, and the idea here is when God brings his judgment, it is righteous, it is right, and, and he, it, his, he, 
it comes with absolute might and power. And so as Christians, you know, you know, we think about also what is it exactly that we're praying for when we pray for, you know, Lord Jesus come, you know, come soon, Jesus. We want Jesus to come. I mean, right? Agree? <laughs> we would love Jesus to come today. We'd love Jesus to come as soon as he can. Right? What are we praying for when we do that? Well, we're praying on the one hand, we're praying for the promises of grace and mercy to come in their fullness through the consummation of the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth and all that glory. But we're also praying for the enemies of God to be judged. That's, what, that, what, that's what's going to happen. Revelation 19 portrays Jesus coming, riding on a horse with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies with a sword proceeding from his mouth. And that's the picture of the word of judgment coming forth from him. And so Jesus is going to come with the word of judgment in power uh, to bring the deliverance of his of his people from the wicked forever that is a part of salvation in the end and so we're, we are it is right to pray these things uh, uh these these types of prayers um and uh, and and well i'll come back to it in a second but so we 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 he pray, so the psalmist prays for God to speak words from, from the past, to speak words of power, and then third, to speak words of repentance, verses 16 to 18. Imprecatory psalms do not always do what we see in this psalm here. But the psalmist's ultimate goal of God's power and judgment being revealed is that the enemies of God would seek the name of Yahweh. That's what he says. That they would know that God alone is sovereign. And, and that is, if they will not, in the view of God's power, his revelation, if they will not repent and submit to him, then he prays that they would perish in disgrace and be forever put to shame and dismay. But he seeks the enemies of God not merely to be conquered, but to be convinced that our God is Lord and Lord of all the earth. The psalmist knows what, 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 uh, that which one scholar wrote. Sometimes people need to be brought to nothing so that they may be brought to God. And that is indeed a fine way to pray. In the face of great injustice, injury, and life-threatening harm, it is right to pray for the repentance of the wicked, that God would reveal to them, even, in, even by ways of pain, the sinfulness of their ways and their need for the mercy of the gospel. But if they won't repent, then we pray for the justice of God to be done and for his glory to be revealed and his holiness against sin. I don't know pastorally how to counsel someone who has been through, had traumatic evil done to them, done to their very bodies. There is a great deal of harm that's been done in the church that says, oh, well, you're a Christian. You have to forgive everyone everywhere for whatever they've done for you, uh, you know, and just kind of like and just kind of and it feels like just to sweep it under the rug. Just, just sweep it on the rug, say, I forgive you, and smile and shake hands and move on. And that's not, what, that's not what we're doing here. And so the idea here is the idea here is we pray for repentance. But it's also right to pray, Lord, but if they won't repent, if they refuse to repent, may your justice be done. And give it over to God. Israel had been brought to nothing. Through centuries of oppression and suffering, 
at the hands of the Egyptians. They were slaves. But God revealed himself, and Israel learned who their God was through his delivering power. They they were brought out from nothing. He gave them everything. He brought them out of darkness into his marvelous light. But against whom did he do that? Pharaoh. The Egyptians, the Egyptian army. He demonstrated his power of deliverance that they're singing songs about in Exodus 15. He drowned an army for that. But it's, it's weird that we'll, we'll, we'll be fine with that, but then we'll read an imprecatory psalm and say, no, too much, too much. And we'll say, well, what are you looking for, buddy? Like, it's right there, right? These words actually, uh, it, this psalm actually concludes a section of what are called the Asaph psalms. And, and the question is, why do, you, why, why do they put this here? Why does this, this end it? Well, because God's people still face opposition and hatred today. The devil, the flesh, and the world make war against us. And there are times when we are overwhelmed, when we are encircled by sorrow, temptation, opposition, and hatred. And it is in those times that we cry out to the Lord for, for we cry out to the Lord for Him to speak, to speak to us in our pain and our sorrow, reminding us of the gospel promises and the reality. Of our, that our present suffering does not even begin to compare with the coming glories. And we cry out to God to speak to our enemies, to terrify them, to dismay them, to bring them to repentance. And if they will not repent, to bring them to justice. But our, ulti- our true hope, though, is that at the end of the day, that they would repent. And that we would bring, be brothers and sisters in grace and mercy. But if they will not, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in hardship and sorrow and loss and difficulty, Father, you give us prayers. When unspeakable things happen and we don't know what to pray, you give us prayers. You teach us what to pray. You teach us how to pray. And so, Father, we, we do pray. We pray, Lord, for your church, that you would continue to bless your church and keep your church, strengthen your church. Lord, may we not be given over to pride and self-righteousness. May we not be given over to fearfulness or worldliness and lethargy. And, Lord, we pray for the wicked. Father, the wicked world that is it, that it, the, the, the corrupt Society, even in the one in which we live, that rails against you, that wants nothing to do with you. Father, we pray for repentance. We pray for the gospel, your gospel grace to shine through as we hold out the word of life, shining like stars in the darkness. And Lord, we pray, Father, that the wicked would receive, that they would repent, that they would turn to you, that we may share that brotherhood and, and that family of, of, of connection and, and, and grace. But if they will not, Lord, we pray for your justice to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do pray 
for Jesus to come and to come soon that he may bring the fullness of deliverance with him and even the fullness of your judgment that we may enter into the glorious realities that you have promised to us the new heavens the new earth we pray this in Jesus wonderful name amen well let's